again uh, today. Uh, Rick started the Psalms last week, and so we'll be on a journey of covering those as I think he said, um, he and I were talking about it, and you know, if we tried to do one psalm per week, we would be in the psalms for three years. If we didn't do any, if we had no, like, here's Christmas, you know, and we're doing something for that, here's Easter, we're doing something for that, because there's 150 psalms, and we'd be in them for three years. And he did the first five last week, I am going, uh, Lord willing, I am going to cover uh, Psalms 6 through 8 today. I sat down and tried to get through Psalm 10, and I failed, uh, but that's okay. It's still there, and you can still read it, uh, and you can read ahead. Uh, so some psalm is Tehillim, Tehillim. It means praises, super simple, praises. And these were psalms that were done uh, in group, in worship, at the temple, certainly on your own. You could sing these psalms as well. And there's notations made of who they're for in some. Rick talked about, you know, who they're, um, some they are, uh, it's, it's named who wrote them. And there's a bunch that are unnamed, that are anonymous or orphan psalms, we could call them. Sometimes you can find out, you know, or you can guesstimate who that may have been based on the content. Other times you can't. And Rick made the point last week that all of the, all the melodies are lost, right? All the original melodies of the Psalms are lost. And so we have freedom to turn them into new melodies, right? We have freedom to say, hey, I love what this says, and I want to put music to it. But what never changes are the words themselves, what never changes are the words themselves, and we have them in perpetuity, right? We have them to be able to go to. So uh, Psalm 88 is reckoned to be the bleakest of psalms. It's still included in the praises. It's still included in the praises. The bleakest of the psalms. I know some of you are like, you're going right there now, stop it. We got, even trimming it to three, we have a lot to cover today. So I don't want you to go there right now. I'll give you this small opinion on it. I'm convinced it's talking prophetically of Jesus and the troubles, the darkness, the wrath, the isolation, the affliction, the terror, and destruction that he underwent for us. We'll get to it in about six months or so. Feel free to read ahead. Rick, uh, again, covered Psalms 1 through 5, so today we proceed to Psalm 6. Uh, That's where we'll be starting today. The first of what are called the penitential Psalms. The penitential Psalms. This is where there's some sin that's being expressed and and request for forgiveness. Uh, And it's interesting that there's seven. There are six, 25... 32, 38, 51, 130, and 143. One for each day of the week. And couldn't we use that, right? Couldn't we use a time each day to say, God, I've blown it again and I need to come to you and see his forgiveness for us. Seven penitential psalms. And Psalm 6 is the first of these, one for each day. Fantastic. Yes, Jeff says he needs more than one per day. Fantastic. Uh, We can find another reading plan for you, brother, and the rest of us. You're not alone. Uh, Psalm 6, to the chief musician. And so um, speculation is when it's written to the chief musician, this is for public worship. I'm writing this to the chief musician because I want you to slot it in to what the public worship is going to be when we come together. With stringed instruments, sheminith is that term, on an eight-stringed harp, and it means striking. Sheminith means striking, right? You're plucking those strings. You're striking those strings. A psalm of David. Psalm 6, verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. 
O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake, for in death there's no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I'm weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the praises that were put together for your people, Israel, and for your people today, for anybody, anywhere, to be able to open and see your interaction with man and to see that we can always turn to you in praise. Father, would you help us right now to set everything else aside and be willing to hear you speak, to say, God, I want to hear from you. I want you to tell me through your word about my life. I want you to cleanse me by your word. I want you to make me willing to step past where I've been willing to go and to go beyond with you. Would you help me to make myself a workman approved that correctly handles your word? Thank you, God, for all that you've done for us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we don't know the occasion of this psalm. We have no insight into what it is that David's suffering. But it goes beyond feeling to actual pain in his body. It's not just, I feel bad about something that's going on. He, he says, my bones are troubled and my soul. My bones and my soul, greatly troubled. And he's crying and he's weeping. And he's begging God not to rebuke him in anger, not to chasten him in hot displeasure, he says. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You ever been in that point in a conversation and, and you see it? You even see it coming, right? And usually it's with your spouse. <laughs> and there's something going on. But it can be, I mean, it's any close relationship, right? And it can be even not a close relationship. The, the fact remains that a gentle answer is far better than a word that stirs up anger, a harsh word. And you get to, you know, the other person says something that pushes your buttons, that sets you off. There's so many smiles in the room. I, it's like we all know this, and, and, it's, and it's there. And you got your comeback, right? Because you've, you've lived with them, and you've seen their imperfection. And you can easily say, but you, or something of that nature, something that puts it back on them. That word, that harsh word in response. And what do you get back when you deliver it? More harsh words. Welcome to the toilet. Here we go. Down, 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 down we go, right? And so we've all had that opportunity, right? Have you ever, well... I don't need to see a show of hands. I'll just think I'll encourage you when you see it coming, start thinking of your gentle words. Start thinking of your gentle words because the harsh word just brings more, and you know what that looks like. Sometimes we take the high road, sometimes we take the low road, and our harsh words stir up anger. And we see things come out of our spouses, out of our children, out of our extended family members and others 
we would rather not see. And it just gets escalated. David says, God, I don't want to see that from you. I don't want to see more anger. Please, please do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not chasten me in your hot displeasure. And that's what he was feeling like he was getting from God. He says, how long? How long, O Lord? He asked God for six things in verses 1 through 4. Do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not chasten me in your displeasure. He's not asking God to never rebuke or chasten him. He knows that's actually needed. In Psalm 94, he writes, Blessed is the one you discipline. He's not trying to get out of all trouble here. He's saying, not in your anger, not in your displeasure. If you've been in those heated arguments, right, can you imagine the anger and displeasure of God compared to the anger and displeasure of a human? There will be those, and the entire creation will be subject to that at some point. And you can read ahead and see what that looks like. David saying, please, God, rebuke me, but not in your anger. Chasten me, but not in your displeasure. The hottest displeasure and most severe anger of God was meted out on his son and will be on those who choose not to come to him for forgiveness. So six things. Do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not chasten me in your displeasure. Heal me, return, deliver me, save me. When he says this in verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? And this phrase or similar phrases to this are found in Psalm 30, verse 9, Psalm 88, which I referred to before, the bleakest of Psalms, verses 10 through 12, and in Isaiah 38 by Hezekiah. So Psalm 30, verse 9 says, When I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Psalm 88, verses 10 through 12, Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? And we have the Selah in there. It means, what do you think about that? When you see that word throughout the psalm, selah, it means, what do you think about that? Take a moment and ponder this. Don't just go past this, right? So many times we read the Bible, we read through something, and, and we're trying to get our chapter in or whatever our reading plan is, and it's telling us to stop, and it's asking us, what do you think about that? Stop and think about it. What do I think about this? What do I think about what's being said? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. What do you think about that? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? You can see why Psalm 88 is characterized the way that it is. Isaiah 38 by Hezekiah, he's been, the prophet has told him uh, that he's going to die. God has said, you're going to die. Put your affairs in order. And Hezekiah, part of what he says in response to this, Sheol cannot thank you. The grave, Sheol, cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. And so these people in well God, if you let all this happen to me, where's your praise going to come from? Who's going to do it? And it's totally human for us to do this. It's totally natural for us to do this. If they could see things one from our side, what did Jesus say? If these stop crying out, the rocks and the stones themselves will start to sing. So will the dust praise him? Yes, the dust 
will praise him. If they could see it from the end, they would know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord on earth and under the earth, even in the grave. Praise will come from God from all over. Praises, the Psalms. This is what we're ordained to bring to God and every part of creation, no matter how rebellious, how downtrodden, will praise him. God is, uh, is never going to be convinced that he needs us to praise him. That, that argument's just not going to work with him, right? It's we that need to be convinced. We need to be convinced to praise him. We need to keep telling ourselves. We need to tell one another, praise the Lord. Not the not happy-go-lucky, you know, oh, my life is terrible. Praise the Lord, brother. See you later, right? Not that, but in there with one another, bringing each other back to praise, back to praise, back to praise. God does talk about us reasoning together in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. We'll never be able to convince him that he needs us to praise him. This is what he wants us to be convinced of. Come, let us reason together. The creator of the universe wants to sit down with you individually and say, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, They shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. And he finishes it with this. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God wants to reason with you. He will set you straight. Willing and obedient. How obedient? Well, he knows what you can accomplish. And he sent his son to take care of the rest. Willing. 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 We're willing to run after so many things. Are we willing to listen to the reasoning of God? and say, this is the direction that I'm going to go in. This is who he is, and he deserves my willingness. David says he's weary all night. His bed swims with tears. His eye wastes away because of grief. His eye grows old because of his enemies. When our focus stays on our grief and our enemies, we waste away. We've all experienced it. We've all seen it happen in our lives. What's in our vision, what's in our field of view, what we spend all our time focusing on, and that can be our difficulties. What are we looking at? Suddenly the light goes on here for David. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. My, so who's the workers of iniquity? Sometimes my own spirit, right? Yeah, you got it bad. You really do have it bad, and that's where you should stay in your mind. That's where you should stay in your activities. And why don't you gather some other people and make their life difficult too by your focus, right? Because that's misery does love com- Misery loves being alone, but it loves company too. And we're never all together alone, right? Because we got our own selves talking to us. Our own spirit would have me focused on my troubles rather than on God. God. And all the things that would have me focused on my trouble rather than on God. He says, depart from me. Get out of my sight. My eyes growing weary. My eyes growing old. Get out of my sight. I need to see other things beside my grief, beside my misery, 
Beside my difficulty. Out of my sight, you're blinding me. Jesus told Peter, get behind me. I don't want to look at you when you're telling me that I'm not going to go to the cross. You're not helping, Peter. You're not helping me. We have a great enemy who will always tell us to focus on the wrong things. We have human enemies that will tell us the same. We have friends that will try to comfort us, but that draw our attention to the wrong things. Here's what David suddenly realizes. The Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, he has and he will. What's the enemy left with? Shame, trouble, and he can do nothing but return the way he came. Like we read, we read that, uh, that verse that says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Well, when you turn your focus onto the Lord, that's exactly what happens. All he can do, let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. That's all he can do. Why? Because the Lord is there. Because he has heard. And he has heard and he will receive. Everything that you've been bringing to him, David, suddenly, his eyes, he's so weary, he's so distressed, he's so caught up in what's going on with him, and he goes, wait a minute. I've been thinking that God isn't involved in any of this, and to the extent that he is, it's just that he's mad, and he's trying to bring down stuff on my head. And all of a sudden he goes, but he has heard me. He has listened. He will receive. All of these things have happened and occur on an ongoing basis. And so his focus changes. The enemy has to go. He will come back. He will look for an opportune time, right? He tempted Jesus in the desert after he's fasting for 40 days. He gives them these temptations, and, it's, and it doesn't work. And what does Jesus respond with? The word of the Lord. And it says he leaves them for an opportune time. An opportune time. He's going to come knocking again. He, he won't even knock, honestly. Does he, Satan doesn't knock. He just kind of wanders in, you know, sits down, hangs out there for a little while, and then all of a sudden he starts whispering, um, I'm going to make you comfortable with my presence first. Just going to kind of move in here. I'm going to start to tell you some, some other stuff. And pretty soon, all that's in your mind is not God. And if it is God, it's that God wants to squash you rather than lift you up. And he says, the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. And Satan says, no, he hasn't. The Lord has heard my supplication. I don't think he was listening, and you're pretty bad. The Lord will receive my prayer. I doubt it. Away from me. Depart from me. And off he goes. In shame, greatly troubled, back the way he came. It's hard to say that we have greater assurance than David, right? Because God spoke to him and covenanted with him, right? But the covenant we have in Jesus, I believe, does give us even greater assurance than what David had. So much that we can focus on in amazement, so much that we get from God, so many things that he's done that our eyes can be full of and be lit up again in delight in the Lord. Psalm 7. A meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, 
a Benjamite. Verse 1, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there's iniquity in my hands, if I've repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Think about that. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded, so the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He brings forth iniquity. He conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Here we have a, a meditation of David. Uh, the Hebrew word is Shion, a meditation of David, something he's pondering, he's thinking about, which he sang concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. We do not know who Cush is. Uh, it, there are some that speculate that it could be a play on words, that it's Saul, the son of Kish, and it's calling him Cush. There's Cush, the father of Nimrod, that's listed in uh, Genesis. Um, doesn't seem like any of those things. It could be somebody that was... Um, so when David, when Absalom uh, usurped the throne and David was leaving Jerusalem to go out into the wilderness, was running away from him, uh, there was a man that was cursing him on the way, throwing stones at him. Could it be a euphemism for him? David... Um, I was about to say David took the throne from Saul. David didn't take anything. God took the throne from Saul. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And God said, I'm taking this away and I'm giving it to somebody who has a heart for me. So no person, no man took the throne from Saul. God ordained that it would happen, and he ordained that it would be David. And David had opportunity before God brought about Saul's demise to take it himself. And he always deferred to God. He always deferred to God. But there are, there, I'm sure, were people after David ascended to the throne that, were, uh, that continued to say, the, the kingship of Israel should be within the tribe of Benjamin. The first king was of Benjamin, and that should have continued on and on. So I'm sure throughout his life, there were words to that effect. There were things that followed him. This is a slandering of David. This is a false accusation that's going on that he's, that he's writing about in this psalm. It, so he's being falsely accused. He says, if I have done this, if there's iniquity in my hands, if I've repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, if I've plundered, then give me the consequences. Give me what I deserve if I have done these things. What do you think about that? Selah, he says. Are there consequences that we deserve? If there are, we ought not to be surprised if they occur. I'm not talking about 
salvation, not salvation. Talking about in our life, for the things that we do to other people, are there consequences that we deserve? David says, if that's right, then give me the consequences. If I've done this thing, then give me the consequences because I deserve them. I mean, you think about that. He calls us, he asks us, what do you think about that? There's some things that we'd all like to be spared of. There's a lot we have been spared of. There's things that we can make right with other people that maybe the consequence is lurking out there that we could fix. He says, if I've done this, let them trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. So one, let's try not to do those things going forward. (laughs) And two, to the extent we can fix things, and sometimes there's really big things and we need counsel about fixing them. But let's pursue that. We get so worried about consequences, and it just struck me here that David said, if this is what I deserve, then bring it to me. And because of the promise of what we have in Christ, it is far greater than any consequence that we could endure here on earth. So to the extent we can fix things, let's fix them. David's bold enough to say in verse 8, judge me according to my righteousness and my integrity. He's not saying, and I, I used to think that, I was like, wow, David is super brash. Like he must have been having a really good day. Say, judge me according to my righteousness and according to my integrity. He's talking specifically about this situation. He did not repay evil to him who was at peace with him. He did not plunder his enemy without cause. He didn't do these things. And they're saying things about him, and it's making him feel that he's going to be torn in pieces like a lion. Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been slandered? The sense of this, right, this tearing like a lion, he says, "It's, it's my soul that's being torn into pieces. That piece of me, that part of me that would last forever, even that's being ripped up. Not just my physical presence, not just my will, my spirit, but my very soul will be torn by the way that people are talking about me, by the way that they accuse me, that they bring this slander against me. It rends me in pieces. Interestingly, Rick shared from 1 Samuel 24 at the men's meeting on Friday evening, the fold, where the, uh, where the rams, <laughs> the, male, the male sheep, get together. It's a great time. I encourage you to come out, bring friends. In verse 9, David says to Saul, and this is after um, Saul has come into a cave, and David and all his men are in the back of the cave. All he had to do was go forward, kill him, come out. I'm king of Israel now. God obviously gave this to me, so you guys come over to my side. And he didn't do it. He cut off the corner of his robe, and then he was conscience-stricken about that, about raising his hand at all, he said, to the Lord's anointed. And Saul gets some distance away, and David says to him in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 24, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? So maybe this was Cush. Cush was one of these guys that was whispering in Saul's ear all the time. David's trying to take what's yours. David's trying to usurp the throne. David's trying to do this. David's trying to do that. And he says, why do you listen to these guys? It's killing me that you listen to these guys. I'm not seeking your harm, Saul. And Saul had the opportunity over and over again to turn back to God. And he continually chose not to. In verse 1, he says, In you I put my trust. Save me. These words, these false accusations could tear me to pieces. It's a difficult thing to be slandered and falsely accused. What we see in this psalm is a call to let God judge, not for us to do so. He arises. He judges. He establishes. 
He is our defense, our shield, our sovereign. Verses 11 through 16, these are the things that would happen to the wicked. If he does not turn back, this is what God, he, little h, if the, uh, if the wicked doesn't turn back from what he's doing, God will sharpen his sword. Can you imagine God at the sitting there? How big is God's sword, right? I don't want to be on the wrong end of that. He bends his bow and strings it and makes it ready. He prepares for himself instruments of death. Yikes. I mean, the sword and the bow, you're like, aren't those instruments of death? There's worse. There's more. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. The wicked, he digs a pit and he falls into it. It says that the trouble, his trouble shall return on his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown on the top of his head. I don't know if you've ever had anything hit you on the top of your head, right? If you're playing soccer and you know if you're going to head the ball, you do it here. That doesn't hurt. Here hurts a lot. And his trouble is going to be brought down on his own crown. Verse 12, there's a way out. If he does not turn back, If he doesn't turn back implies that he can turn back, that the wicked can turn back. There is repentance. This is the long-suffering of God. The sin is done, but God continues to give chances. So um, I can't say this is how it works, and I'm not trying to create a new doctrine, so... Don't, this is me imagining, all right? Is that, can we all deal with that for a moment? Like I can say that from the pulpit, this is me imagining, not saying this is how it works. You all right with that, Ray? Thank you. All right. So um, the idea of the cumulative effect or the cumulative punishment that um, is required for sin. So when Jesus died, there was the sin from Adam all the way up to everybody existing at the present time of his death whose sin he needed to be punished for, right? So all of those generations that occurred... So I don't understand exactly how this works, but then I imagine every person that's born after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, there's more sin that Jesus has to pay for. Every generation that comes, and now population exploding exponentially, there's more sin that has to be laid on Jesus. Again, I'm not saying this is, you know, it gets harder for him. He's Jesus. I don't know how to explain it. It just strikes me as another way to appreciate the long-suffering of God. If I was going to die for you, I would say, stop sinning. And I certainly wouldn't say, oh, and by the way, I'm going to pay the tab for everybody else that comes after you. I think I'd say, we're going to be done with this now. This is it. And there's been exponentially more people and more generations since the death of Jesus. So when you wonder whether God has any patience left for you, consider his long-suffering. He allows generation after generation of sin to be laid upon his son. And he could have stopped it any time. 
Verse 17, this is our part. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. I will let God judge and I'll let God deal with the wicked. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. El Elyon, the Lord Most High. He's above the slanderer. He's above the mighty. He's above the wicked. He's above the powerful. He's above the nations. He's above the rulers and thrones and dominions. El Elyon, the Lord Most High, above all. And he loves you. And this is a perfect segue into Psalm 8. I think you could disagree. To the chief musician, again, something to be enrolled in the, in, the, uh, in the catalog of songs to sing here. On the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, Psalm 8 verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Who have set your glory above the heavens, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Consider the heavens. Consider the heavens. The observable universe. So you want to geek out on some some facts. I can't guarantee we got all the math right, but I think it's cool. Consider the heavens. The observable universe is about approximately, right? The scientists don't say about because that's they need a bigger word. Approximately. 93 billion light years across. So that's diameter, right? You think of a circle. Diameter is side to side. And circles don't really have sides. At least they have side. That's the distance across. So that's 93 billion. So that's 93 billion times 5.88 trillion. We'll just round it up to six if we're talking about trillions. I think that's fair enough to do that. Right, 93 billion is 93 with nine zeros after it. Six trillion is a six with 12 zeros after it. And when you multiply them together, your calculator says ERR. Because <laughs> it doesn't have enough space. Unless it's a scientific calculator, then it puts it in scientific notation and puts an exponent above the zeros. Right? So that is uh, 5.47 times 10 to the 22nd. So a 10 with 22 zeros uh, miles squared. That's pretty big. But wait, right? Because that's just to get to one end to the other. That's one straight line. Like, how many lines is a circle made up of? What's that called, my math friends? No, that's the distance around it. I'm talking about the inside, the area, volume we're getting to. (laughs) Don't you worry. Volume we're getting to. So that, there's a formula for that. Miles and I were geeking out on this last night, right? So the area uh, is uh, pi r squared. For those of you that remember some mathematics, 
Somebody say we did that. <laughs> pi r squared or pi d. But anyway, uh, so the area, right, diameter uh, 5.47 times 10 to the 22nd miles squared area is, uh, and it may not be miles squared. I don't know if a line you would have squares. Miles is shaking his head. Thank you for the misinformation yesterday. Making me look like a fool up here. Um, the area is square miles. That is 7.2 times 10 to the 45th power. Michael is assenting, and he's an engineer, so fantastic. Square miles. But wait. Somebody said something about uh, the volume. So if the, if the universe is expanding... Momentum tells us, according to Miles, who just finished taking physics, that things would not just expand in a flat surface. They would expand in volume as well. So the volume would be 8.1 times 10 to the 68th power cubic miles. So that's that's the observable universe. Those of you that don't like math are like, I hated math before, and I still hate it. I apologize. In other words, that's big. It's huge. And it's estimated that that volume contains 200 billion galaxies, and those are estimated to be about 3,000 to 300,000 light years in diameter, and we're not going to do more math, I promise. God has set his glory above the heavens. His glory is above 8.1 times 10 to the 68th power cubic mile. God is. Is his glory big? What does it say he holds in the span of his hand? All of it. How great is your God? How big is your God? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in the earth, in this little tiny thing within this vast universe. And that's just the observable part. That's all we can see. That's pretty glorious. He says, when I consider the heavens, verse 3, I consider the heavens the work of your fingers, right? The heavens is fine work to God. It's not like I got to put my shoulder into this, right, and move this thing. I don't have to put clamps on it. This is the fine work that I do. This is the work of my fingers. Just as fine motor skills. The moon and the stars, if the whole thing he's using his fingers, the moon and the stars, I picture somebody tying flies, a fly fisherman. They got their magnifying glass. Uh, and they, and because they can't see the little tiny D's. Now, I know God doesn't have to do that, but it's so small and it's so fine. The moon and the stars, like this, to God. Man, that you are mindful of him. Like how much of the space of 8.1 times 10 to the 68 cubic yard, cubic miles is it that we occupy? Your calculator would definitely say error if you tried to do that. What is man that you are mindful of him? How mindful? Psalm 139 verses 17 and 18 say, and to me, toward me, not to me like I'm thinking about your thoughts, your thoughts toward me, thoughts, God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, then the sand of the sea would be more 
in number. That's how mindful God is of you. So we have the heavens, the works of his fingers, how fine, how detailed, how incredibly specific and deliberate then must he have been about forming you. His thoughts towards you are precious and more than the sand of the sea. I'm excited. If you can't tell, we should have Rick up here because he would be really excited and it would be bigger. But, man, when you feel God has forgotten you, grab a handful of sand, dump it out on the table and start counting the grains. Precious thought number one towards Joe. Precious thought 300,068 towards Tina. Precious thought. 1,897,222 towards Artie. And and you're not sharing them with these other people. Those are all towards you. That are as many. Each grain, a small portion of the precious thoughts God has towards you that you could pick up in your hand. You're not forgotten. You're not hidden. If you're hidden, it's in the cleft of his hand. If you're hidden, it's under the shadow of his wings, under his protection, safe from anything that would try to separate you from him and from any temptation too difficult to endure. He's not only mindful, it says, but he visits us. I I think back to that scripture in Isaiah 1, come let us reason together. He puts his arm around you and says, let's talk about this. What amazing access we've got to God. He says he's made us a little lower than the angels. That's quoted in Hebrews 2, verse 7. He gave us dominion over the work of his hands. Is a a song um, by Jefferson Airplane called Crown of Creation. Anybody know Crown of Creation? It's old. I'm older than I look, I know. I I should be into Jefferson's starship. No, thank you. Jefferson Airplane, you are the crown of creation, and you got no place to go. That's the lyric from there. You are the crown of creation, and you've got no place to go. Only we could get what God has given us and be angry thinking we have nothing to accede to. But there's no higher that we can get. But you see this happen in families that have become very wealthy. Some of the children feel like, where do I go? Where do I go from here? I've got nothing to accede to. I'm just going to live off of what mom and dad have. I can never accomplish what they've accomplished. We've always got something to accede to, and his name is Jesus. And we're to become more and more like him. There's no ceiling for us. We have a place to go. We get to become like the only begotten. What a wonderful journey we've got. So I want to go back to verse 2, and I want to pseudo finish with that. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. And this is in Matthew chapter 21, and I'll give you a second to turn there. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, and I'll read from verses 12 to 17. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Verse 13, Matthew 21, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer but you have made it into a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to him, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Babes and nursing infants. Why does he use them? It's very rare that a caregiver, right? Like, I mean, unless something's broken that you need to go to a doctor for. Very rare that a baby can't be consoled. I'm not saying it doesn't take energy. Uh, or Miles. This is your day, Miles. Miles required a great expenditure of energy on our part to care for him. He wanted to be held. So anytime any of you see him, just give him a hug. Because he just wants to be held. <laughs> No. Well, if you want to hug him, you can. That's fine with me. Um, It might take all of your energy and then some you didn't realize you had to console your child, right? It may make you sleepless. It may make you crazy. It may do all sorts of things, but they just want to be held. They just want to be fed. They need to be changed, and generally they can be consoled. Right? We have a father, we have a provider whose energy never flags. His energy never flags. The little boy just came in. And praise, we have to realize he has and will take care of our needs. Out of the mouth, of nursing infants, you have perfected praise. You have ordained strength. Praise is perfected when we put ourselves in that place, that place of understanding who we are compared to God. You may not like to have yourself referred to as an infant or a nursing little children come to me for such as they are those that inherit the kingdom of God, we have got to get it on straight that God will provide for us, that God will care for us. Gotten into the habit, and I don't do it every night, and I need to be better. I want to be better about this habit. When I lay down, I think about, I start to think about all the things I need and I stop and I say, God, I know you will provide. I don't need to list them to you. I don't need to keep rehearsing them in my own mind. I don't need to keep thinking about how I'm going to fix it. You are my provider. And I leave these things with you. Good night. Right? I sleep better. I sleep better when I leave it with the one who has said he will take care of it. The chief priests and the scribes are indignant. There's these amazing things going on. The lame are healed, the blind see, and all they can do is be indignant. They say to Jesus, don't you see what's going on here? Don't you hear what these are saying? And Jesus says, yes. Yes, I do. Haven't you ever read? Don't you understand? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've perfected praise. And he just leaves. When we don't understand that, We feel like Jesus just walks away. When we do understand it, we understand whose hands we are in. 
Jesus shut them up and he left them. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Father, we thank you that you are beyond everything and intensely involved in our lives. That your thoughts toward us are precious. That we can entrust judgment to you. When we're falsely accused, and we can entrust judgment to you when we receive consequences that we deserve. Are on the wrong things, God, that we can return to you and remember you have heard our prayer, you have heard our supplication, and you will receive our prayers. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Thank you so much, God, for what you've done for us. Let us be people of praise. Let us be people who consider ourselves infants dependent on you, excited to do your will, excited about the things you'll teach us, that like babies, God, who learn as second nature, would you help us to learn you as second nature? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer,